I think the low threshold of tolerance for BS in manufacturing really keeps a lot of dumb things out, which I personally very much appreciate. But simultaneously, you're right. We have to take what we know about technology and come up with something that they couldn't even envision. Welcome to SHI's Innovation Heroes, a podcast exploring the people and businesses making a difference in our constantly disrupted world. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. A global pandemic, a looming recession, and ongoing political conflicts have created the perfect storm for supply chain problems, wreaking havoc on demand, labor, and infrastructure, and impacting almost every sector, from consumer goods to food and commodities. And you can't find lumber to build a new home. Well, you can't find products to stock the shelves of your small business. You can't find holiday gifts. Well, it's all because of the global supply chain crisis that's happening right now. Every week, there seems to be a new challenge that pops up, which creates more demand and even more stress for consumers and manufacturers alike. And since every transformational business is affected in some way or another by the supply chain, I have a few lingering questions. What are some of the more tangible causes of the supply chain crisis? Why is it so hard to fix? And where do we start? Hello, and welcome back to Innovation Heroes. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. Today, I'm speaking to Sunny Han, founder and CEO of ERP platform Fulcrum, to get some new insights from the perspective of someone trying to innovate and help solve some of the supply chain issues related to manufacturing. Together, we'll cover the causes, trends, and most importantly, some of the cutting edge solutions for the supply chain crisis. So welcome to Innovation Heroes, Sunny. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, let's start off with some background. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and why you're passionate about helping the manufacturing industry? Yeah, I came to America as an immigrant, as a kid, and got citizenship right before I started college. So a lot of who I am, I'm just thankful for the community here in Minnesota and the opportunities that I've had. I was able to take math classes in elementary school through a program called Umptiump here at the University of Minnesota. I learned to code at my mom's lab at Shepherd Lab here as well. Kind of a lot of the experiences that I have from a technological and manufacturing standpoint are just kind of a result of where I grew up, basically. So I stumbled upon manufacturing after school, kind of a little directionless in my career. A lot of my friends, their families own manufacturing firms, or they were working for private equity companies that were buy buying them. I did a project with the SBA to you know drive around the Midwest and visit small manufacturing shops as well. And I think one of the weirdest but most obvious realizations is that everything is made. And I know it sounds so stupid when I say it like that, but before I started visiting these shops, I didn't really realize that not only is everything made, but the kind of the scale at which everything is made to run this world that we love living in. And I think this industry, manufacturing, is extremely forward-thinking from a technological standpoint, but the platforms that they're using are just really old. And for me, the passion comes from the possibility of being useful, that somehow my experiences of who I am can be added up in a way that could actually change the way that manufacturing works. That's really exciting to me. You know, that that's really interesting. You say you drove around the Midwest, you know, visiting different manufacturers. And yet, like, I think the narrative is that people say, well, America doesn't make anything anymore, right? I mean, that's clearly not true in your eyes. Yeah, for sure. There's like big categories of stuff that we'll always make big bridges. Like we're going to make them here, right? right? Like architectural stuff for the U.S. Bank Stadium. Also defense stuff that's important to our safety and really tiny stuff is probably going to be made here and electronic stuff. Some subcategories are. But one interesting fact is that the majority of our customers are up 
over 20% in revenue year over year over last year, I think a lot of stuff is starting to come back, especially as you hear stories of companies like Winnebago unable to, you know, ship their final good because they're missing one bolt or like one subassembly that they then have to find a vendor here in the US. So I think not only is a lot of stuff made here, a lot of stuff is going to be made here more so than in the past. So let's go back to the basics. You know, what made you decide to build your own ERP system and start a company around that? We certainly didn't start off trying to build an ERP system. There's a founder of a company that we respect called Rippling. The founder is Parker Conrad. He also started another company called Zenefits. He has a way of describing businesses as two different types. One he refers to as a solution business or a tool business, a product that's just a tool. And what he's creating at Rippling and very similarly to what we're creating at Fulcrum is what he refers to as a compound business. And how he defines it is that, you know, as you use a bunch of these tools, you have to integrate them. They kind of don't speak to each other, they develop very separately. There's this belief that I have, and I think that he shares, that we're entering an era of compound businesses. We're building three or four or five different things for a business is going to multiply the value that you deliver to that business. And we started off trying to do just a tool. And what we realized was we were just not able to deliver something that was that much better by itself. So we started off building just the job floor job tracker, taking paper and making it digital. But we still had to integrate with these really old ERP systems. We still had to play with spreadsheets that were not live. Really, we were extremely reluctant for years. We built just the job tracker. We built just one more thing to try to get it to be valuable. It wasn't until many years later, three years of doing that, until we realized, okay, we have to build the whole product in a very different way. And going back, it really felt like the market was just hammering us in the head with like a baseball bat saying, come on, wake up. Like, this is what you should do. We were just kind of foolish and resistant to it for a very long time. So I would say that we tried to do the exact opposite, trying to do just one small thing. And we accidentally stumbled upon the fact that we needed to do six different things and integrate them to make it really valuable. Yeah, it sounds like peeling an onion. Once you start to solving one problem, you realize you've got a whole bunch of others that are related to it, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Those who might be unfamiliar with this technology, how does ERP help small businesses? You know, Walk us through what Fulcrum offers potential clients. Yeah, this acronym, we, we hate acronyms, but that's what people understand. But <laughs> ERP stands for Enterprise Resource Planning. The word enterprise resource planning, the enterprise part of it, was actually a marketing technique that was used in the early 90s, late 80s, that called back to the, like, the Starship Enterprise from Star Trek. And the analogy that it was calling back way back when was the computer on the Enterprise just gathered a ton of data and was able to tell you what was going on throughout the whole ship, right? And so at its heart, manufacturing was the first industry to really kind of as a whole adopt ERP technology. One database, you put all your information into it and you can ask it questions by pulling reports out and say, all right, now that I have my financial information in there, my production information, my inventory, can I start pulling some information out that'll help me make decisions? So at its core, that's really what an ERP is. But you can kind of imagine that in the late 80s, early 90s, there were no smartphones. The internet really wasn't a thing. It was you know, dial-up modems in weird, nerdy corners that people didn't want to look in. And that's really the era that this technology was developed and architected and invented. So a lot of the artifacts of that type of software is that 
you pull information out of it on a piece of paper, you analyze it in, in Excel or something, and you come have a meeting and you and I talk about what the mistakes were and we try to try to fix it. The analogy we use with our customers is like, imagine if you're working out and someone is manually writing down your heart rate. And not only that, they don't show it to you. They go and put it into a database and pull a report out two weeks later. And then in three weeks, they tell you, oh my goodness, you almost had a heart attack three weeks ago. Well, that's not very useful, right? So what Fulcrum is doing is it's taking all the technology we have now, all the modern technology, cloud-based architecture, live data reporting, and data entry, and just giving these shop owners and production managers a way to connect everything automatically. And now as you pick something off the shelf or run an operation or scrap something, if you make a mistake or produce a good part or ship it off, everything is so close to real time that your decisions become close to real time. And that's the big paradigm shift that we're powering going into the future. So just by the nature of what you're designing, you know, one of the cool things that you get to work with all kinds of different manufacturers and really see how they work at a granular level. You ever just see one that's like, wow, that's, I had no idea that how that was made or how we got there. Is there any, do you have any favorites that stand out to you? I mean, every single week we have a handful of new customers and there's it's all sorts of cool stuff, like little rotor caps for bikes and a company that makes really awesome crew neck sweatshirts that we ordered for our <laughs> swag for this year to, oh, I didn't know that the rubber that separates the aluminum from the glass in a window system for a commercial building, that's all extruded from dyes that look like the profile. And why is that important? Well, it's because it fits perfectly. Well, that's how you prevent air from leaking out and it can save tons of carbon emissions and dollars in terms of heating costs if you get a, a little bit better in the the thickness and and the a little to, a tighter tolerance in the measurements of the profile that you're extruding like little things like that amaze me all the time to a large sheet metal fabricator that's in upstate new york that makes most of the components for the new york metro transit the bus system so like all these things you'd start to see okay yeah actually that's how you make it. You put a flat sheet of metal in something and it squeezes it and then it looks like a bus. And I'm just, even though I've seen it so many times, I'm just constantly like there's always this dopamine hit when I get to connect how it's made to like the physical object that I see when I go travel to New York. That, on the flip side, so you get to see that, you know, how everything, when it works, there's a real consulting aspect to what you do. I mean, how often do you have to bite your tongue where you're like, hmm, you've worked with so many manufacturers and you're like, oh boy, like there, there's like an oh boy moment where it's like, hmm, like how do you approach with a client where it's like, maybe there's not just what they're requesting, but it, there's got to be a whole like consultative approach to it, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think two things are true simultaneously. The first is that Manufacturing is really old compared to the internet. And mm. in general, the industry's figured a lot of stuff out. Like we're clearly very good at making things, right? So I think there's that. I think that by and large, the core parts of making stuff, they get it. And the reason why I like what we're doing, which is working with smaller manufacturers first, is I think there's this like craftsman, artisan, knowledge that lives in their brains about what can happen to metal. Well, there's a business here in Minnesota that bends metal and just knowing how this metal could bend or not bend, that that's just knowledge that's not in any book, right? It's just years or decades of experience. Right. I think the second component too is that manufacturing is kind of a very low BS industry. 
the part is either right or it's wrong. <laughs> like it comes off the machine, <laughs> you measure it. You can't just do a tap dance and like cover it with paint and be like, this is it, right? And you can definitely do that in finance and in technology and in a lot of different places. But I think the low threshold of tolerance for BS in manufacturing really keeps a lot of dumb things out, which I personally very much appreciate. But simultaneously, you're right. We have to take what we know about technology and come up with something that they couldn't even envision. They can tell us about their problems. And, you know, we really believe that part of trust is non-judgment. So we tell our whole team, your job is not to judge their company, but it is to judge their idea. And deep inside their idea is a piece of pain and something important. But then it's our job to envision what it could be with technology powering it. And sometimes the answer is nothing. Sometimes the answer is, I can't do anything about that, at least not with technology that's available now. But oftentimes we're able to come up with something. And uh, we did this customer live stream the other day. And one of the questions was, tell me what is the next thing that we can't see, but you can. It wasn't an annoying question. It was like a genuine curiosity. Like we've trained them to understand that we're able to come up with these answers that they might not be able to see. And they understand the value in that. So I think that's more of what I do in terms of biting my tongue is I have all these outlandish ideas. I have to filter them out and only give out the good ones, right? So the biting that my tongue comes from me suppressing my own bad ideas instead of giving some feedback on theirs. So speaking of which, you've overcome some obstacles in the last few years, you know, for manufacturing, the global pandemic caused a lot of upheaval. You know, what are some of the biggest hurdles you faced and how did you overcome them as a company supporting manufacturing through all of that? I'll give you a surface answer and I'll give you a maybe more raw one. I think the most important answer probably is actually the surface one, which is we have a product that is sounds like something that everyone knows. It's an ERP system, but it's fundamentally different. It's just different in every way. And I tell the team that this sounds arrogant, but it's actually the best analogy that I have, which is when the iPhone came out, every other phone had every single feature. Every phone had a screen. It had a browser. You could send pictures. You could send text messages. They had keyboards. They had email. They had all sorts of stuff. But the iPhone, you know, and I know, and all smartphones now are just fundamentally different. And that is and continues to be our number one challenge is how do we under, get our customers to understand, yes, we fill this need, but we do it in such a different way. And we do all the things that all of our competitors have for decades claimed they do, but don't actually do. So I think that is a communication problem that we're, going, we're continuing to solve and getting, getting better at it. In terms of a, a raw answer, you know, that process that we went through of building different modules and trying to build as small of a thing as possible. Well, through that process, I lost both of my co-founders through personal failure of my own. There were many times where the two of them disagreed and looked to me to provide leadership. And instead, I just decided to try to do what both of them wanted. Mm -hmm. And that splitting of focus and splitting of time and indecision, I didn't realize at the time that that was critically a failure of leadership. And through that, the tensions just got so bad that they both ended up leaving and I had to cash on my 401k and borrow money from my parents, my in-laws to buy them out. And it was financially and emotionally a really, really difficult time for me because obviously I had no money left. And also two of my best friends that I started this company with were gone as well. So in looking back, I think that had I realized that it's my job to understand what the impact of my decisions are, 
I think I would have realized much sooner that I was the one at fault for not providing enough leadership. No, I really appreciate you you sharing that. I mean, but your response to that was to kind of double down on yourself, right? And, you know, you're like, okay, you're kind of the last man standing now. So, um, and you're going to take out from the 401k and double down on that. And was that, how hard was that particular decision to be to bet on yourself like that? It didn't feel like betting on myself. It felt like existentially, like, do I want to continue or not? Mm -hmm. And here in Minneapolis, there's like a chain of lakes that's really close to Minneapolis. And I walked in a figure eight around two of the lakes three times before really finally deciding, like, I can't stop. I believe in this just enough that I'm willing to put everything on the line. And thankfully, my wife was really supportive of that decision. So were my parents and my in-laws. So... Obviously, without their support, I couldn't have pulled it off financially. But in terms of making that decision, I think the decision was mostly between what, how am I going to feel about my life in the future if I really had this opportunity and I didn't do anything about it? And the other was, was like, how much pain am I willing to take? And there was just a realization, you know, I had a friend uh, tell me that he believed the most successful people in the world don't have to sacrifice anything and they have everything. And that really haunted me for a long time. And I think in that moment, I decided that's not true, that the people that I know that are really successful, it's actually the opposite. They've had to sacrifice the most. So in comparison to what other people have sacrificed, it just made this small financial decision seem that much more trivial if I really believe that I can maybe potentially help influence and change an entire industry. So if I didn't I had to ask myself, did I really believe that? And if the answer is no, then I shouldn't. But ultimately, the answer was yes. I don't know if I'll be successful, clearly, the level that we I want us to be, but that was really what the decision ended up being. Yeah, I can echo that. As reporting to Ty Lee, SHI CEO, for you know 20 plus years, when people ask me about her, I always say, no one ever talks about the sacrifice. That's the part that like, everybody sees the success, but they don't see the sacrifice. It's usually often done alone someplace, and it's usually hard work, and they don't see that part, and it's not the part that they talk about. So it's really interesting. Yeah, and there's also a bunch of people that sacrificed everything and didn't make it right because it's not a guarantee and i think those people those are sad stories that those people need some support as well so changing gears for a little bit from the from the consumer side a challenge we've heard you know from friends colleagues just about everybody is kind of the supply chain crisis we've been hit with over the last few months you know you work directly with manufacturers and from your perspective is there a crisis and what are the causes and you know how do we emerge from this Supply chain as a whole, when we talk about it, is really large. There's a lot of it that's interdependent, but there's a lot of it that's also, you know, kind of fragmented. So, you know, I get asked this question all the time from friends, and I usually try to give a thoughtful answer that's compartmentalized a little bit. So the first thing that I think is important to describe is that there's this thing called the bullwhip effect. If you imagine a bullwhip and you are cracking the whip, There's this curve that is really big in the front and gets smaller and smaller and smaller over time. And whenever you have a shock to the supply chain, to any supply, what happens is that you overproduce, you take all the resources and all the components and they're gone. Mm -hmm. And then your production tanks again because you don't have any of the intermediary things that you need. And then you overbuild all those things and then your production goes back up again and smooths out. So I think one thing that I'm very confident is going to happen is that whatever this COVID supply chain shock was, it isn't going to resolve itself in just one year or one cycle or something like that. It'll reverberate for quite some time and get smoother and smoother over time, but still fundamentally exist for quite some time. 
The second thing is, I, I think a lot of people have a very Thomas Edison, you know, Henry Ford mindset on how things are produced, and that's just not the case anymore. The majority of the things that you use, that you touch every day, there's hundreds of components from electronics to plastics to rubber to glass to metal to aluminum to all sorts of different things in it. And each of those things is machined or extruded or pressed or coated or cut with very specialized machines that can do very specialized things. And those machines and people that know how to operate them are typically in different companies. And so really the problem that Fulcrum is trying to solve by creating a modern ERP solution is to create something that's connectable. Because really the problem that's in the network is that it's an analog network. If you and I were both manufacturing shop owners that were on some supply chain to make computer monitors, let's say, there is no digital way for us to share information. We can share by email, we can call each other, we can send PDFs. But the real problem is that if you end up having a problem, I got to wait for you. I can't switch and buy a small subset from someone else. And yet there's some other person that does exactly what you do that's under capacity. And so the problem is that there's hundreds of thousands of manufacturers in the U.S. alone, and there's no real way for them to find each other in a sensible format. So that, I think, is the biggest crisis, is that we've created this extremely awesome network of artisans, and we have no digital way to connect them. And I think that's one piece that I think we can help with as a company. The last piece that is a little bit more negative, which is we've done some deals with the devil, essentially. We've outsourced things to China that have to come up back to the U.S. on huge boats. We've gone really close to just-in-time inventory. We brought our inventory levels really, really, really low, so there's no safety stock. We introduced a lot of complexity into the supply chain that didn't need to exist, all in the name of saving a buck, of shipping things from here to Ireland to Mexico to Southeast Asia, all over the place, just to get a little bit of labor savings, a little bit of material savings. And the net effect is maybe one or two or three or four or 5% of profit improvement. But the net effect for us as a civilization is our supply chains are just that much more fragile. And so I don't know how to fix that. I don't think it's legislation. I don't know what will fix that last piece. But I do know that in, in the pursuit of profit, we've made some fragility increasing decisions that permeate the entire supply chain. Almost every single product that you touch, there's some fragile part of the supply chain that exists because of the complexity that we introduced. Sonny's story as an entrepreneur who set out to help influence and ultimately transform an entire industry certainly defines him as an innovation hero. But his grasp of the nature of the manufacturing industry, its history, and his appreciation for it is what really makes him stand out. So now I want to deep dive into the supply chain crisis and how Sonny sees a way forward. I saw in a previous interview, you said that you preferred smaller businesses because they tend to do the more, I'm, gonna, I'm paraphrasing, but they tend to be more results oriented. So is that kind of what you're talking about? Like smaller businesses are better at making those correct decisions, correct in our mind anyway? Yeah. And I think it, it's not, it's, there's a few facets. One, they're smaller so they can see everything, right? And it's very personal. Mm. There's a statistic I heard recently that before the industrial revolution, every manufacturer was a shop that had no more than four or five people. The cobbler that made your shoe, they met you. They measured your foot, they made the shoe for you. And it connected you and the work in a much deeper way. I think you see that in smaller manufacturers. The average operator of even a 2,000-person shop is just far more engaged than a 50,000-person Fortune 500 company, right? right? And I also, those big Fortune 500 companies, 
they don't actually do the production. They outsource it to these smaller businesses. So I think that's one really charming part of it. I think the second charming part is that when you walk through the hallways of these oftentimes old buildings, right? These aren't people that invest in really beautiful buildings. And when they do invest in beautiful buildings, they're very practical. Aligning the hallway of the entryway, there's almost always a curio cabinet or a display case or a bunch of frames of their end product, what spaceship it went into, what car it went into. There's this like extreme personal pride of being connected to the finished good. And it's inspiring. It's like, it gives you this emotional currency to spend when things get hard. Like if I can connect this person and know, help them understand where they are in the supply chain and where they are in the world, their place in the value stream that they're participating in, the fact that's actually going to be meaningful to them more than just the profit it'll help them make. But in a real fulfilling kind of a way, there's an extra layer of frosting on top of whatever you know, economic change we can drive. Absolutely. Seeing that pride is really something. And to that point, ERPs, you know, can be challenging. I mean, if it's not, if you replace one incorrectly, you could really kind of be, be rudderless for a while. Do you have a preference over, you know, replacing an existing or, or installing a new one from scratch? At the beginning of this interview, you talked about moving things, from, moving things from paper and maybe off the shop floor and into an electronic system. Do you have a preference one way or the other to replace an existing ERP or get somebody started from scratch? No, both can work really well. I think there's just some trade-offs. If you already have an existing system, some of your data is in some database and we can we do a lot of the work for our customers. We don't charge them for it. It's kind of part of how we're different, but we can work with that. We can pull that information out, structure it, help you upload it. If you have no system, there's a little bit of a painful process of like collecting all these pieces of information in everybody's head or in different spreadsheets and smoothing it out. That's a lot rougher. But the folks that have a system in place, there's a lot of processes that you put in place from a business standpoint, simply just to cope with things that were missing in the previous product that we're replacing and undoing those things and helping the customer realize there's actually no value to your business that you did this. You did this because you had to cope with some of the shortcomings of your previous ERP product. That I think is where the people that have no system, they're, they're, we're kind of starting greenfield. We're just doing what's best for their business. And that there's a good feeling in that as well. So I don't know that there's a place where there are no bad business processes. All the data is in one sp- <laughs> spot. Like, I don't think there's a best of both worlds out there. So I think it's just a trade-off. I would say that the most important factor is, do you get it? For some of our customers, when they see us, they've been looking for what we're doing for a decade. And there's almost this feeling of like putting a like cooling ointment on a mosquito bite that they haven't been able to scratch for a decade. And they're just like, I get it. This is it. That I think is really the determining factor on like whether you're just going to fly through implementation and really get benefit really quickly. And we try to replicate that in our sales process. We try to ask a bunch of questions and get them to see what their business would be on Fulcrum. And we can, we're getting better and better every week at creating those types of customer experiences from people that didn't have that itch. So that I think is kind of the holy grail is like, oh my goodness, I truly understand how much better I could be as a company if I had this product. It must feel great when you could see that aha moment in in somebody's face on one of your customers. Yeah. And, you know, we talk a lot about the negatives at our company because our philosophy (laughs) is that you can only fix problems that you know of, right? We recently had a, a customer live stream that I talked about where one of our customers, Jeff, just without any rehearsal, got on and demoed our product to a bunch of 
people. And we were scared. Obviously we were like, is this going to work? Is this going to be great? And he just flew through it. And there are engineers of ours that were on that live stream. A couple of them said that they like were brought to tears or like, wow, like nowhere else in my career have I seen users just love the product and like fly through it and just appreciate the little choices that I made to put things in different places. So that was that was really gratifying. Yeah, no one wants to be inefficient or you know, but and so like in, empowering them in that way has just got to be awesome. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in the last few years of your of your business journey at Fulcrum? The one that I've realized I've learned recently is that as a kid, uh, and I think I was a kid up until I turned thirty, probably probably even until <laughs> now. But as a kid. I, I thought that the world was just comprised of physics-based rules. I think it's because I learned math and science at a really young age, maybe, or my parents were both engineers. For some reason, I didn't think that the way that the world is made up was changeable. I thought it was additive, like you had to add on top of things. I think what I've realized is that our company, our competitors, our customers, every organization I've ever touched or been aware of, those are simply just collections of decisions. And sometimes you inherit those decisions from a previous generation or because you Googled it. But really, each and every component of what we do, we can do whatever we want. Clearly, we want to do the things that work. But even in the realm of things that work, there are endless possibilities on how you can choose to do that. So I think that's a, both a really scary but also a very freeing thing that I've learned. And I think it's probably one of the most important things for sure. Yeah, I like that. Companies are a collection of decisions. I like that. Sometimes you look back and you're like, why did we make that decision? It's like, well, Mm -hmm. tell me what was going on at the time when we made it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So for anyone who wants to know more about you, your work in Fulcrum, where can they find you or where can they find more information? You can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Sonny Han. You can email me, sonny at fulcrumpro.com. Anyone who's listening to a podcast, I always respond to emails. So sonny like the weather, S-U-N-N-Y at fulcrumpro.com. And then you can just come to fulcrumpro.com and schedule a demo, look at our cool, pretty screenshots of our product and some stories about our customers. But yeah, check us out. We definitely will. Sonny, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Ed. It's great chatting. The last two years ushered in one of the worst supply chain crises in recent history, and there is no straightforward solution. But while many larger businesses are looking for the future for ways to weather the storm, a lot of small to medium-sized businesses are still wondering what to do right now. To be able to plan for the long term, you have to be willing to modernize and upgrade. As Sunny points out, creating a modern ERP solution would enable manufacturing businesses to better connect with their providers and also help to connect them with each other. Because while the road to full recovery may be long, the key is to carve out a digital path to create a more robust culture of supply and demand. Thanks for listening to this episode of Innovation Heroes. Every two weeks, we meet with the unsung heroes who are radically changing the way we live and work in order to tackle the major challenges facing transformational businesses. So tune in to our next episode in two weeks. You won't want to miss it. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider being our hero. Smash that like button and subscribe button to Innovation Heroes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Innovation Heroes is a Pilgrim content production in collaboration with SHI. Our producers are Brian Brusis, Christina Clark, and Tobin Dalrymple with production assistance from Amanda Sheffer-Cavanaugh and Ryan Wetter.